Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Chris Fogarty, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Prior to founding Fogarty Finger in 2003, Chris Fogarty was a senior designer at Skidmore Owings and Merrill Architects, uh, SOM, in London, Washington, D.C., and New York playing a significant role in national and international competitions and completing many award-winning office and mixed-use buildings. Chris's current and recently completed projects include the Dime uh, Dime Bank Building in Brooklyn, a new 23-story tower merging uh, retail, commercial, and multifamily residential units adjoining the existing Dime Bank, the Jackson, which is a 56-unit condominium building near MoMA PS1, that's public school one in Long Island City in New York, and the Lanes, the first co-living micro suites project in New York City. Uh, So doing a lot of work, a lot of commercial work, a lot of multifamily work. Um, I'd love to talk today with you, Chris, about the way our world has changed, right? We're coming out of a pandemic here. Uh, There's some permanent changes. There were some temporary changes. It's affected everything. Right, it's changed the way yeah. we work and we live and we play, um, and so I'd love to talk about that—how the pandemic has affected our world, our built world, uh, and our practice, the way we practice. But before we get into that conversation, I'd love to learn more about you uh, as a person, as an architect, 
Uh, share your origin story. When did you discover architecture and who or what inspired you to become an architect? Well, as you can probably tell, I'm uh, not from here. I'm uh, <laughs> a long way from home and haven't been home for a year and a half. I mean, I think we're all probably struggling with that, that our parents and family that are close to, uh, and certainly for my office here, I've got lots of people who work from overseas. I mean, you know, we're, we're used to being able to touch base and connect in a way that we haven't been able to do. But uh, I came here about 24 odd years ago now, but I grew up in Devon on a small seaside town, uh, far from anything. Um, and uh, I just loved drawing, couldn't stop drawing. I was addicted. You know, I, I, it is what I did. If it was what, the, what did you draw? What was your topic? Oh, fantastical cities, um, you know, birds, superheroes, you know, like anything I could draw. Like, you know, you, yeah. I talked to my daughter the other day, like I used to draw Spider-Man. I couldn't believe, you know, they could draw a person in six strokes and it would you know you'd just be like blown away and they somehow caught movement and everything so i drew and drew and drew and um and uh, i guess i was good at art uh and thought about art school thought about lots of different things but uh then then i did a history project when i was 15 on my school which was designed by an architect uh it's kind of high Victorian, William Butterfield. And he had done my school as a kind of precursor to Keble College, which was one of his big, bigger buildings at, at Oxford. And um, and I went up to the Victorian Albert Museum up in London as a 15-year-old, and you could go into the kind of drawings collection and they pulled out, open a drawer, and there were the original watercolors for my school. Oh, wow. And I was blown away. I was like, wow, you can do this and get paid for it. I mean, like, this is this is great. Uh, so, you know, I didn't have much idea what I was doing. You know, nowadays, I think, you know, certainly the better schools have huge career advisors and, you know, people advising you and parents seem to be more organized. I mean, but my parents didn't really have a clue. And, and uh, you know, I just applied to a bunch of architecture schools with no real knowledge of anything about it or what the course was or anything other than I thought I could draw and I kind of like buildings. And um, I got into most of them and, and I thought I'd go to Liverpool. That seemed nice. And uh, my father said, no, no one goes to Liverpool by choice. He said, people spend their lives <laughs> trying to get out of there, which is, I'm sorry for anybody from Liverpool. And he said, where else have you got into? And I said, well, I got into this place called the Bartlett at, in, at London University. And he said, we'll go there. And that that little did I know that was the best school in the country. So there I was, you know, some little country kid and all these sophisticates. And um, but I loved it and uh, had a great time and uh, learned a huge amount. Then I did my postgraduate up at Edinburgh University, uh, and I kind of fell in love with the city again. There it was just a, I don't know if you've ever been. I mean, Edinburgh is they call it the Athens of the North and it, it is breathtakingly beautiful. You come out of the train station. I fell in love. I mean, like I've fallen in love a few times in my life, but that was the first time really with a city. <laughs> and so that was that and met a great professor there and sort of started, started that, that, that was that. And I came back down to London and it was just really, it was in the, in the early nineties. And I, I think in the, in the U S it was the same way. Like it seems to me strange. We've been through a, the Great Recession, we've been through this terrible pandemic. But actually, in 1992, it was far harder for an architect to find a job than it is oh, yeah, today. Sure. I mean, we're all scarred by that. And I look at my office and yep. all kind of innocently kind of still getting a paycheck. I mean, there was no work at all. 
Um, and uh, so I thought I'd have to go off to, um, you know, go off to Berlin. Everyone was going to Berlin in the UK because Berlin had been, you know, Germany had been uh, uh, unified and they were building like no, no, no. And it didn't matter if you didn't speak German. Everybody was there. All my friends were there. So I, I thought, well, that's it. I, I worked for somebody for free in London, but it wasn't really sustainable. And then I went off and I thought I was going to give in my notice with my roommates and say I'm off. And then I got a job with a landscape firm around the corner and um, uh, I was like, for a week. And I stayed there for a year and I loved it. They, I learned everything about thinking about the seasons, thinking about space between buildings, uh, a whole different world that I hadn't taught, been taught at school. And they were doing a project with SOM London. And, you know, I'd go in and we were doing the hard landscaping or something, you know, uh, and the partner in the London office took a shine to me and he said, you don't seem like a normal landscape architect. And I said, well, actually, I'm an architect. And he said, well, you want to come here? And so I was their first hire in the London office. They'd been 400 people and they'd gone down to 40. Wow. Um, I mean, that's how, that's how awful it was. Yeah. And uh, so I was the first hire there and I stayed there for five years. And then it was, then I was getting kind of restless. I'd been dumped by my girlfriend. It was time to do something else. And uh, I thought I'd travel I went and got myself a job in Hong Kong and I came back and resigned from SOM London. And they said there was somebody I'd worked with in New York. And he said to a partner, he said, look, maybe you want to get this guy. So they brought me over to, they said, look, don't leave. Um, do you want to go to Washington, DC? We need a senior designer. And I was kind of a squirt, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was doing projects in Potsdam and Germany and, and, various things, but I wasn't running anything. I was just, uh, you know, somebody who they threw onto something to help. So, but they pulled me over to DC and I arrived with a little suitcase and nothing else. And uh, then I suddenly realized I had this team of 15 people and they thought I was a senior designer. So I sort of <laughs> fell into it. And, um, so what, what did you do in that moment? Did you, did you admit that you didn't know and, no. and allowed them to help you or did you no. just play the role? Just, and yeah, I just played the role. Yep. And and worked really really hard, for like triply as hard as 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 I could, and um, and we won some competitions, and then we moved. They moved me up to New York, and we won a few more competitions, <clears throat> and you know then it was kind of you know. But then I kind of felt like I was running out of the runway at SOM, and it it's you know it's interesting I, I loved the firm I loved what they did I loved the scale of the work I'm not super detail-oriented so the kind of uh the big picture has always intrigued me and um but you know the partners you do the math the part it's like a law firm except no one ever leaves so you know the partners were 42 45 I was maybe 30 they, they retire at 60. So that I had 15 years before there was an opening for me to become a partner. And you can just kind of, and also you sort of, you know, you know, in that time, you watch the people ahead of you, they just run out of runway as well. So you watch these senior people, great talented people, but you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of machine and you could just do the math and see it wasn't going to work. And um, it was probably better to jump ship. So 
so that was it. So I just went in and I had a very nice relationship with the partner I worked with. And um, I said, look, I'm quitting. And he said, well, he said, well, I guess that was, you always get to do that. So I'm surprised it's taken so long. But he said, when are you leaving? I said, I don't know. I said, actually, I already got to the quitting part. I haven't actually got a plan. <laughs> and he said, well, when you got a plan, let me know. Uh, so I think six months later, and I kind of finally found a space. And then they let me have a bunch of old furniture, the office manager, you know, like they were incredibly supportive. Um, I was finishing a tower up on Times Square and uh, the client wanted me to finish that. Um, just the I was just the design person, but if they had questions, they wanted to be able to ask me. So that was kind of my first project. And the other first project I had was a student's uh, bathroom in West Village. So I'd have these completely strange experiences where I'd be going up a hoist of a 55 story building feeling like I was somebody and then I'd be running off to Home Depot to buy a toilet seat. <laughs> and, uh, that was my new life. And, um, and so that was that. And then we kind of getting it up and running. And um, so when was that? Well, how, how long were you at 2003? So that was uh, 18 years ago or something. And, and so, then I so, so about how many years? Uh, 10 years? It was there? 10 years at SOM, yeah. 10 years. Okay. You know, I kept on trying to quit. I mean, like, that was the thing. They just kept on finding better roles for me. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, so I was doing this, this, these, these projects, and it's very hard. I mean, you, you've, you've been there, like, starting a practice. You think all your clients are going to come with you. They don't. Like, yeah. you know, they they need SOM because that's going to get the financing and no one's going to trust anybody else uh, to do anything. They they But they had great relationships with them all. So, you know, if they needed a bathroom redesigning in an office building, they might give us a shout. Um, and then I had a client, and I think this is one of the big breakthroughs for me, was that I had a client who, a friend who had a law, was at a law firm, they were looking for someone to just expand half a floor or something and I didn't know anything about interiors and I I, I I hate even though I when I said at SOM Washington I didn't lie I just didn't tell them that I didn't right. know what I was right. doing yeah. but if they'd asked me I would have said I, I don't I don't I think it's much better to be straight up and honest with people. And so I didn't want to let my friend down who was bringing us to the table. So I needed somebody who could do interiors. And I asked uh, Robert, who I'd known at SOM, who'd left as well. And he was, uh, he, I said, you want to come and join us and we'll make a pitch for this. And we got the job. And I think the the big thing that, I, that, that I've been really thankful for all these years is that I got a partner that I really trust right at the start. Um, and that has made growing and thinking about the firm and talking strategically and making decisions so much easier. I can't imagine doing this without somebody that you trust implicitly to come along for the ride. When you when you started the firm, did you think maybe I'll have a partner or was it not really part of the plan until you had this opportunity? Wasn't really part of the plan. And we kind of started, you know, I didn't really know him well that well. I mean, he was in a different group. He was in the interiors group and I was on the ground upside at SOM. Um, so we said, look, and I'd kind of set up this funny little structure for Fogarty Architects it was then. But I said, well, why don't we call ourselves Fogarty Finger and let's just work together for a year. And if we like each other at the end of the year, we'll make it official and we'll. So just stayed separate companies. Yeah. Marketed yeah. as one. Marketed as one. And I think that's kind of that was a kind of that was a smart move. It took all the pressure out of it having to work. Um, you know, how, how did you deal with contracts for that? Just one of you took the contract? 
and then uh, yeah, it would be Fogarty Architects, and but you know they they didn't really care. Like yeah. the contracts are so small, no one's really asking heavy questions, and yeah. um, you know, so we would we would do that, and we did a lot of like bit by bit, we'd get an apartment. Uh, we'd do the departments would get bigger, then we'd get like a townhouse and we'd get another townhouse. And so, and then we had that kind of side going and the corporate side was kind of quiet, wasn't super busy, but we did get some multifamily work of uh, apartment and uh, building multifamily interiors like uh, for like uh, big companies like Avalon Bay, strangely. Um, and so we sort of started getting ourselves a little bit more organized. You know, we kind of grew slowly. It was it was very slow at first, like two people, three people. Um, but it was fun. And it was a different sort of scale than we'd both been used to. Uh, you know, he'd been used to doing half million square foot buildings versus for Goldman. I'd been used to doing towers. Um, this kind of getting detailed and oriented and thinking about spaces and really uh, how people use space, how people use a kitchen, how, you know, like all this stuff, which uh, we just blissfully had no idea about for many years was came up and forefront and really helped us uh, change the way we thought about space and, and, and architecture. And I think really gave us a kind of great foundation. And I'm, I, you know, I think, it's one of the things that I'm most grateful for is we had these kind of years before we started rolling it back into the stuff we had been doing of really learning about uh, residential architecture in, in a really helpful way. And kind of interestingly was really current because hospitality and residential feeling was beginning to come into everything. You know, like the commercial workspaces were getting much more uh, thinking about how to make them feel less like an office before COVID. And that was going on in multifamily buildings as well, is that, you know, these lounges and uh, different sorts of spaces that 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 uh, gyms, yogas, pools, uh, pantries, kitchens, wine tasting, all that stuff was beginning to happen as well. And so that residential kind of language that we learned and developed it actually got us just right at the right part of the where that market started moving into the other into our worlds, so that was kind of interesting. And then it started kind of rolling. And I, I, you know, we found you've always got to find, you know, my big advice for anybody starting a practice is find the crazy first client. You've always <laughs> like you've got to find that client that is either so cheap or so nutty or so naive or a mixture of all three that doesn't realize that you don't know what you're doing and is willing to take the risk on you. And and if 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 you get exposure to anyone like that, jump, and and don't worry about the fee. Just get that first building or that first project done, because then all the others come following. So, what was your first crazy client? What was your so, the client or the project or both? Well, you know, I had so the nice thing about leaving SOM on a nice terms. Most people, most people get fired from SOM. They're not really used to people leaving, you know. <laughs> like so, they, you know, so. TJ, who was a partner there, recommended me to a friend of his cousins, of his whatever. And this guy was complete, he had no idea what he was doing. John, he was lovely. He bought a piece of land in Long Island City and we developed this completely unbuildable building for him. And of course, then 
the market kind of moved and he was left holding it. And a kind of really aggressive Israeli client came in, bought the land and partnered with John. And, and that guy was our first client, AL. And uh, he was great and fantastic. And he got that thing built. And then we did another six, seven buildings with him. Um, so once you get that first big commission, then yeah. you could market to that and that's right. find that's more right. clients like that one. And I've seen this happen with friends of mine who started practices. And I, I remember an engineer once who he was like, he, I said, look, Mark, I'd really love you to come and be the engineer on this project with me. And he just left a big company and he was with his father's firm or something. He said, well, I'm going to have to give it a really big fee because I've never done this before. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> That's not good. However you look at it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how's that going away? He's like, well, I can't afford to lose money. And I'm like, but you're never going to get out of the sort of work you're doing. And so I, I think that's often part of the risk analysis is like, you know, okay, is this, I feel out of my depth and I'm probably not gonna make much money here or if anything, but I need to get that project up and running so I can kind of get more, 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 more of it. And then, and then the other thing is all these clients that I had from SOM, you know, the youngsters who were working there for these big, kind of corporate clients, they all go off and start their own thing as well. So they would always call me because so you would get this kind of, you get these kind of new clients that never, you know, just, but mainly all word of mouth recommendation and bit by bit, it started growing. Um, and I think we're about 120 people now, which is kind of crazy. And you focus primarily on commercial and multifamily? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely a corporate firm in that sense. and. Uh, and um, I think, you know, we're very strategic about how uh, we try and get, I think one of the things that SOM taught us is, you know, design is foremost and fundamentally the most important thing we do here. Uh, but you, you can lose a client if you don't know or understand what they're trying to say to you. And I think one of the things that both Robert and I have is in a, in a very good ability to help look at things from the client's point of view, but then be able, so we can answer all the questions that they may throw at us because we've already thought about what the answers are. So they're not, so you can kind of, one, you can keep the project running very smoothly and, and uh, speedily and quickly, but two, you're not also battling in on something that doesn't need to be battled about, or more importantly, you're never going to win because you yeah. don't understand the way that they're thinking. So, you know, we try and we, we, that was one of the reasons I left SOM was as well, is that I, I really hated the wasted time of pulling all nighters to present free schemes and then to have them value engineered down to nothing. So there's an, it's like, it, it seemed to me there was a much more logical way you could navigate through this where you didn't so have to. How do you do that differently now? Um, it's interesting. You sort of, on a, on a multifamily building, you almost know the market as well as they do. So, but you also, so, you know, if they're starting saying, look, I want to do three bedrooms in, and they all need to be 2000 square feet, you kind of, either you run for the door, you know, in a market, in a place where the market's only one bedrooms and studios, yeah. you know, you sort of like, you don't believe them. So you sort of, you can't tell them that they're wrong. You know, you just kind of listen and you kind of help navigate them there. 
you try and get them there before they price it out because otherwise you're going to do all these drawings and they just can't afford the building. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing. It's, 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 or, you know, if there's various filing and code, like that's, that is perhaps the hardest, that was the hardest thing for me coming out of SOM. I just knew how to design buildings and there were a bunch of people who knew how to get buildings built. Right. Um, I had to become that person who learned how to get buildings built and what the process was. So, you know, understanding uh, how New York City works or how Jersey City works or how it works in Atlanta or Boston, you have to kind of, you can't, you can't wing it. You have to know it so you can help your clients through it. So getting really educated about, about everything you're doing in advance is, is the key, I think, to try and, to try and give them strategic advice. And, then sitting with your staff before meetings and going through and kind of explaining to them why that 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 isn't going to work out, you know, like why you have to go this way. And so you can spend your energy focused on design instead of being focused on trying to fix the problems you created six months before because you didn't yeah. think of where this was going to line up. Do you tend to to have that happen less now that you have 18 years of experience doing these types of yeah. projects and they just trust you about more? Well, I think there's a couple of things that are nice. One is I have more experience and so I have knowledge. More importantly, I've got people who've been around me now for a long time. And that's 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 actually I think the better piece is like 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 what what was good at SOM is they had so much inbuilt knowledge, right? And it would transfer generation to generation, but they would that you know, there were two, three hundred people and they could there was there were, there were people you could go to. Um when we started, we didn't have that, right? It was just me trying to look through the code book and understand it, or even worse, the zoning and trying to understand New York City zoning, which yeah. is just terrifying. And, uh, you know, now my senior people have that experience and they can share it and I can go to them and ask. I don't have to try and remember everything. I can go, you know, what, what, what yeah. what's that fire corridor thing we need now in Jersey that we didn't use to before? You know, so that sort of stuff gets a lot easier. So I think it does get easier. The, the difficulty is that as you get bigger, you get more of it. You got, you know, so you've got more work. Um, and, you know, I think I keep reminding myself, I have to remind myself, there's a lot of really, you know, as, as my wife says, you know, architects, the only people who care about how big their firm is. Everybody else is concerned about what their profit is. You know, <laughs> like, she's like, what is it with you guys? She she has a term for it. She says we call, she, she can't even talk to me about the way we think about finances. She calls it archi-math, where none of it makes any sense to anybody outside of the architecture world. And it doesn't actually make any sense to architects either, but yeah. it's what we convince it is we need to keep going. I think you're you're we're experiencing a lot of head nodding right now with the <laughs> listeners. Yep. Then you get that archie finance, archie, archie yeah. math. Yep. I mean, the best thing we did f f five, six years ago is, you know, we started thinking about succession, which is actually truly the 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 unknown. Like, if anybody's figured it out, you know that that that's that's the uh, that's the uh, target. But we we. We, we had somebody come in because we started thinking about what is it, what is succession? What does that mean? How do we do that? And it was, it was a really painful process, you know, conceptually, but, but we had this guy, he was a business consultant. He was a landscape architect. He taught at Harvard uh, to the, to the architect students about the business side of everything. His name is Brian. And that was fantastic and taught Robert and I to think of our firm 
not just as like an architect would, which is how many people and what did where you get published and everything else, but actually think of it as this as this business. And he had this great piece of advice, which was, you know, we we never think of the business. We always think about design. Like I'd much rather design a building than think about, you know, why are we not making profit on these projects and how do we go get change orders for this? Because that's kind of really depressing. But he said, you know, think of your business as a design project and give it the same care and thought that you give to a design project. And it doesn't have to be all the time, but don't push it away, embrace it and enjoy it and take the best out of it. And I think that was really useful for Robert and I to sort of just think of it like that and think of you know the other thing which is you know is thinking of our work it's kind of the quality of our work directly impacts the how much fee we can charge for it right then this concept of a brand you know like and, you know and architects don't like to think of ourselves as brands you know but but in fact that's what we're selling right. to people and we can charge more money if we do it better than others right and and then you can also get better staff because they want to come and work for you as it's well a big cycle. So it's a big cycle so i think that was super important for us as well to think of to to embrace the business side of it and not be scared of that um yeah the better the business the higher the fees and the more fees you have the more profit you have and the more profit right. you have the more you can build your business to be a better business that's right and you can pay cycle. your staff well Right. Um, you know, like it, it really is sort of crazy how that works. And, and, you know, I think we ended up in the multifamily and the group. We're kind of interesting because we're effectively two firms. Most, most practices are uh, an architectural practice that dabbles in interiors because they have some interior side that they need to fulfill. Or they're an interior firm that has some ground up because they have a few clients who want to do that. And you can kind of see that happening. Like Studios was an interiors firm, but they now have architecture. Gensler was an interiors firm. That has right. yep. SOM, though, was an architecture firm that had some interiors. From the start, we were an architecture and interiors firm. And our offices kind of split 50-50. Um, it's very nice for a client. If you want to come to us and you have a building, we did a, the, the Dime building in Brooklyn is like... 200,000 square feet of office and maybe 200,000 square feet of residential. Well, because we can do the ground up, the residential and the business and all the interiors, it's very nice for our clients to have that kind of ability to have one firm. And they might talk to Robert on the interiors and I might not even get involved. You know, that like, I'll just trust Robert implicitly that his team will do that and we'll focus on the ground up. So it's, 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 it's nice like that. And I think also, you know, all everything's built in New York City. There's there's very little space left to build right. new buildings. Yeah, so you sure. kind of are by default most of the time doing a lot of interior work anyway. So, you know, it's been it's been good. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. As architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond. How are you and your architecture firm keeping up? RCAT is here to help. RCAT.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects and download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. It's free. 
RCAT.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline and short form specification generation, and so much more. Visit RCAT.com today. RCAT.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity and get more projects done faster. That's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with financial reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time? But if we don't send out the invoices, we don't get paid, right? FreshBooks makes it easy to send out your invoices and get paid fast online with a click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Go to entrearchitect.com freshbooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com freshbooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Have yeah. you seen any any changes in the way you're designing because of the, the pandemic? Yeah, not as well. I mean, I think is probably the biggest change. Because, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, we were able to flip over and go remotely um, very quickly. And I was sort of, a, I, I, I spend most of my time expecting doomsday scenarios to play out all the time. I'm completely you know so finally something happened that yeah, really yeah. was serious <laughs> yeah i was right <laughs> yeah and i was filling the basement with supplies and my wife this is back in like january and my wife was just get, you know getting ready to get me certified and i was like no this is gonna be serious and so we had our entire office we uh was set up remotely and so um and our staff from china just stopped coming in like at some point they were like you guys are nutty even getting on the subway like we're not coming in so you know i think march 12th like everybody we just shut everything down but we yep. at, at least a month before that we had everybody up and running remotely so they could go home um and we'd found teams like we found all this software that we had for free that you could actually do all this remote working with yep. uh and um but and and we'd also used iPads for a long time. I'm a big believer in iPads and trying to get people to draw instead of going into the computer and getting lost in real, you know, actual real space. Like I, I keep trying to get people to pull back and imagine, you know, just get the information you need to get across rather than getting lost in right. the detail of one to one. So you're using iPads like sketchbooks? Yeah, all the drawing, time, drawing and we out. have, yeah, we have everybody has an iPad, almost everyone in the office, and uh, with Teams, you can draw and communicate at the same time as you're sharing with on, you know, everyone can see it on the screen. But even for the guys going to site, you know, they can take a photograph, sketch on it, yeah. send it, and the beauty is there's no scanning or anything else, it's all instantaneous. Um, so the iPad's been really useful, but 
I think the difficulty is that the way we work is that the team would be, we'd, we'd have everybody, I'd walk around and I'd go, I'd be kind of nervous that we'd have a meeting coming up in a day and I'd go over to their desk and they'd be on 3D and SketchUp or whatever. And I'd be able to sit there and the other guys would come around and stand around us and we'd, I'd say, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And we'd kind of move quickly and I'd be like, well, is this good? Am I losing it? Like somebody speak up now before we right. put this to bed. And, you know, the senior people could just sit and come and talk to me and talk about design. And, and design could be this thing that was at that moment when you were talking, not around your desk, rather than being like, okay, let's talk at 2.15. And so what I found with this has been a lot of me marking things up and trying to get it back to them and then talking through it. But it's been... Uh, less horizontal than I would like. Yeah, you know, the, so the, the spontaneity is gone, yeah. and the yeah. and the the serendipity that comes with being able to walk past somebody's desk and seeing the work they're doing. Exactly, those meetings that pop up. And, yeah. So yeah. you know, it's it's time to come back. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office, and there's just me, and uh, I've you know now I'm vaccinated. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're surveying our staff, they're all getting vaccinated. So we're beginning to, we, we've said Labor Day uh, to come back, but, you know, we've got people all across the country now, you know, we told them, we tried to be very upfront uh, with all the decision making we've tried to do. And if we haven't been able to commit to anything, we've just said, look, we, we don't know, we like this pandemic's proven anything, it's just you can't judge can't plan anything yeah that's for sure everybody thought two weeks yeah that's right <laughs> we'll be back to normal i did i was like i was no, like you, no, you no. had the I, base was, I was like I had, I had supplies for six months down <laughs> in that basement but uh no so you know we, we we realized that you know september last year people were coming up with leases like do i do how long do i sign a lease for am i still you know people have been in a little apartment in New York or Manhattan or Brooklyn for, you know, six months and going out of the mines. And it was, you know, as the sun comes out, it's hard to remember how depressing it was in November. So we said, guys, look, if you need to take a lease, take a lease for a year, if we're going to aim for September to come back, but January, you know, 22 will be when we expect everybody to be fully back. And we'll, and, and we still don't really know how it's going to work either. Are we going to still have, part of the office in, part of the office yeah, out. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Whatever, you come back as a hybrid model. I, I'm I'm a great believer in you don't need to be at the forefront. Like there's some really smart companies with billions of dollars of revenues to figure this stuff out. And we're just a little architect's practice. So I'm just going to kind of watch and see what, what they do and uh, track it a bit. Uh, the remote thing works just fine. I mean, I think part of the difficulty now is that people have gotten uh, uh, like it. And I think hybrid working is going to be a perk and our competitors yes. are going to offer it. So even if you, I think I, I the, the tricky part is you can be all out or you can be all in. When you start having free people in the office, free people out of the office, a client that wants to come in and see all the people there, it gets a little harder. And I think that's the bit that we're going to yeah. try and navigate our way through. I think that's going to be the, the piece that everybody's trying to figure out. That, that the whole idea, we know that it works, right? We've been doing it for yeah. over a year. 
Um, it's preference. The preference is to be in the office, to have everybody there from a leadership point of view. From a staff point of view, it's probably mixed, right? Some yep. probably like being home. Some probably like being in the office. Um, but clients will have expectations and the, and the work will have requirements, right? There'll, there'll be some type of work like the design work that you're talking about. Some of that- Or material selection. I mean, yeah. throughout this whole thing, we've had to have people come in and just, uh, cause you have to have the materials come somewhere. And we've been sending out like free sets of everything to like, clients in three different places. So instead of having one meeting where they all come to you, we've been, I mean, we've been more like a shipping company in here. I mean, like we had to move the uh, multifamily interiors group, we had to move them out of the main space because they were such a mess. It was, it was just horrible. So yeah, I, I think, my wife thinks it's going to be a bit like, uh, you know, the banks all went casual when in the dot com because Google was right. taking all the best minds and they wanted everybody to not feel like they they, they did, needed to let everybody feel like they had some choice about what they could wear and not wear suits. So you had this kind of awful moment where Wall Street was full of these really <laughs> right. bad looking golf shirts and khakis. And, yes. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, they started seeing that their boss was going to a meeting and she might be wearing a suit or he might be wearing a tie. And uh, suddenly they realized, you know, they might have to go to a meeting. They didn't know if they were that day. And they did, so they started wearing. So now you've, now you've got this thing where everybody wears, the men at least wear suits with no ties. But that, that's kind of gone back to being the uniform for Wall Street and banking. And my guess is that we'll see something like that, where the uh, hybrid will kind of start off and then just bit by bit, you know, people will start realizing that, mm. you know, so-and-so got promoted over me, but is that because I was, you yeah. know, only in the office once a week and they were there every day and, you know, or such and such got a better job than I did, you know, like, and why did that happen? And I think you'll see that sort of slowly. I don't think we'll be, I don't think we'll be trying to force it with an iron my guess is it'll just kind of happen. Yeah, the system will adjust itself yeah. in order to be yeah. at its at its optimum. Or we get variants coming through every five minutes, and this is where my doomsday scenario comes in. And you know, we we have to. So one of the things we're doing for hybrid is, you know, we did everybody. You could either log into the office, or you could take your computer back home. Um, and then have that computer log into the server. So you had two ways of doing it. It went 50-50. So we've got about 50 people who have their desktops back at their home. And so we're in the process now of buying another 50 computers to fill those blank spots in the office so that they can come into the office, but also have the ability to go yeah. work at home. That's and, interesting. Yeah. yeah, and all our associates and senior people getting laptops for the same reasons so we can get their computers back here yeah. um and so we're yeah i mean doubling that's, down on technology that's a permanent change right that's a permanent it's, it's change. essentially you're going to have duplicate equipment so you that's can right. have a, a hybrid model that's right and then we have the ability to flip back and forth depending on what happens yeah I think the things that are going to be great are i mean certainly for working mothers uh in particular We've yeah. always tried to offer flex time, but flex time used to be more like, well, I'll, I'll work three days a week and the other two days I won't. But um, our working mothers, I mean, one of them called me the other day and she just loves this. She, she's an incredible uh, worker, but she just loves the ability to kind of log in, log out. And yeah. um, right. I think we're going to see that 
becoming much more. I think, you know, waiting for the cable guy to turn up. You know, it used to be you have to lose a whole day of your life, right? They they come between nine and twelve and turn up at three. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, now you can just work at home all day. You don't need to lose a vacation day or anything for that. Right. Um, right. So, I think it. I think it's definitely here. There's no excuses. I I can't say to anybody, oh, well, that. That's not going to happen. You know that yeah. can't work. They're like, uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly. And that, and that's I mean that that was the reason why no one was making well, few people were making that transition prior to the pandemic because it was a hard transition to make. Um, and so you could say the excuse was that no, that's not going to work. We don't work that way. And then it was you know in two weeks we we started working that way and everything changed. But We've got go ahead. Sorry. Well, we've got an interesting thing. So our lease is up here in a couple of years. And, um, you know, so at the moment, we're just doing patches to our office. But, you know, we're, we had some open plan conference rooms. We're making those uh, partitioned and glass screens. We're increasing the ventilation. Um, we also got some basement space that we're going to kit out with more conference rooms and everything else. But but what's what's going to be interesting and is you know, our new lease will be somewhere we go to a three years time is trying to think about what we do for that. And again, we're going to just kind of wait and see. We're going to like, we've got the luxury of not having to make those calls right now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and in fact, most of the, of our corporate clients that, that the tenants are doing the same thing. They kind of, they extended their leases everywhere. Uh, for an extra two years, so when this started, so they bought time. Um, but you know, we're going to have this strange thing in New York City in two years, where every lease is up. Like you've got three years of leasing all coming together at one point. It's going to be ridiculously busy. Um, but people are hopeful that we'll know what sort of uh, future we're in. Right. And it's very hard. You know, we're we're meant to be looking at this and being the uh, forecasters but i just you know robert and i are kind of skeptical and that it's going to be that drastically different that yeah that we, we we just don't see it but that's you know. interesting because i mean you you guys know better than anyone you're designing those spaces and, and that was actually going to be one of my questions was that do you see a trend happening now for those future uh workspaces but but it sounds like much like what we're talking about here, a lot of those companies will wait and see before they make those changes. I think those trends will come see. later. I think there's certainly companies where, say, if you're a management company and you managed a bit, like it, the more independent you were as individuals working in an organization, I think there they've realized that you really can reduce head. You just don't need as much space. Like yeah. not everybody has to come in all the time. Um, for the more creative companies like ours, uh, you know, we can't even make hot desking work because, you know, on everybody's desk is a pile of materials or samples or, you know, like, and uh, they have all their computer settings set up. So we'll see if that, if, you know, that's one of the big ones that we'll try and see if we can kind of find some way to, to reduce the dependence of people on their particular desk. But I just don't know. The big thing that I, we were doing before, and I think we'll continue even more so is, one of the things I've loved is, you know, during the day, I can get up from the desk I have at home, go sit on the couch, think about things there, then go into the kitchen, have a coffee, make myself like, like I can move around during the day. 
And we were doing a lot of, we talked about amenities earlier and, and what we've seen in the corporate world is that that, that amenity, like for, so for the GM building, we're doing a whole floor of amenities. Um, and this was kind of led by WeWork. It wasn't right. invented, yep. but they kind of had this idea that there was more going on. There was a ping pong table. There was, you know, if you wanted someone to do a yoga workout that you didn't have to leave, somebody could come to you. Uh, there's a bar or a lounge, um, conference rooms, and all this was led by same thing as in multifamily, where, where in, in the multifamily world, they were making apartments smaller, but offsetting it with a bunch of amenities that you could go use. So if, you, if you're with your roommate and you're sharing a tiny, you know, or maybe you're a couple and you're in a small one bedroom, if somebody wants to work now, there's a co-working space in the apartment building or there, there's a lounge or you can go find yourself a nook in a little. So the same thing's happening with office buildings where they're squeezing more and more people into the same amount of, you know, same amount of space, but they're offsetting that by having these beautiful amenities where, and I, and I think that'll be one of the things that we will definitely have. I can certainly say when we move to our new space is we will have a space where there'll be this much more communal living room with a bar and seating and casual seating and everything else, which is nothing new, but, but certainly we probably weren't rushing towards it, but now absolutely. I, I, I really want to get away from my desk. And I think that was kind of the big thing that I took away from it is that that change of environment is really helpful for healthy for you during the day. Yeah. I, th I think in this, throughout this past year, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how to work and how to live and how to play in, in new ways. And some of those ways are, are a very positive change. And so it, it'll be very interesting to see what the next 10 years looks like in the way we work and play. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, thinking about, I mean, I know you look at small firms and I still think of us as a small firm and it's, it's, kind of interesting if I'll still think like that in five years like I wonder when that changes I still think we're a complete startup like if you know I get really depressed think it's been 18 years it feels like 18 months um, so I'm always I'm always kind of wondering if that feeling ever changes where you kind of relax uh, in, into your business I don't know I doubt it <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> well, then I think it always—it's always evolving. It's always growing, and I, and yeah. I think it does go back to building the business, right? I think it does That's go back right. to that conversation we were having before. The the better the business, the more systems you have in place, the more automation you have in place, uh, the more predictability you can build into your business, the more freedom you have as a designer and an architect, and and to be able to do those things that you love to do because all, all those other things are taken care of. I was trying to work out why did we become a bigger firm though. I was sort of kind of interesting. Like, you know, was it just always predestined that we would, or what are the things that kind of get you to that point? Um, and I was trying to work out: is it would it be nicer to be? Because one of the depressing things about being a bigger firm is that you 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 know you become more corporate, and you don't know the names of everybody or what they're up to, or right. what their, you know their families are doing, or where they're from. Like it, it becomes, and it was definitely much more fun when we were smaller. Like you know, saying somebody we had whoopee cushions on you know people's chairs. Well, I can't do that now. You know, like yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, so you know, I think it was kind of interesting. It's like, was it pre and and if we hadn't, would I still be? enjoying it or not it was kind of interesting because i think 
in New York, it's it in New York you kind of have to be certain size to survive, right? Like, but there's many ways of being an architecture practice having a really wonderful life. But these big cities tend to require bigger practices just because the projects are so big. Yeah. Um so I often kind of think about that. I'm like, is it just like did I, well, I it it sounds like it's time to go back to the advice of your business consultant and and look at it as a design project and say, well, now, right. I'm, now I'm a firm of 100 plus. How, how do I, right? The problem is I, I'm not having the fun that I used to have. I'm not having that that feeling that I used to have. How do I do that, right? And then come That's up right. with the, the design, the solution to do that. How do we redesign our current business structure in order to accommodate those things and, and make it a, a more uh, pleasurable place to, to work for you? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I think um, also one of the things I'm looking forward to is not being a pandemic yes. advisor. Like, you know, like the last year and a half has been, uh, you know, we've had all had long yeah. months and everything else. But I mean, I remember our staff uh, just like January of this year it was just really a dark time for everybody. Like had Christmas, we gave everybody two weeks off and said, just forget about us or whatever it was. Like, don't yeah. think about it. Um, and then everybody came back and it was the same. And I think, you know, trying to keep everybody's morale, trying to kind of, uh, that, that it's all part of what, but this, that, that, that worrying about your staff, worrying about the healthcare, worrying about, you know, uh, yes, their yeah. employment. Um, it's been a long year and I think I'm looking forward to not being a pandemic director and being yes. a, an architect again, because it, it has been, that, that has been. I think uh, much more stress than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, you kind of like in in a normal time, you know, you can if the market starts tanking on you, you can say, well, look, they can find another job. But in a pandemic, their healthcare is at risk, right? Like you can't let it. Like you know, you've it's it's a whole different uh, yeah set of things that you're trying to manage and deal with and so we were we were lucky we were able to kind of keep almost everybody um and and get enough work uh, one of the nice things is because the zoom we were able to get work in different places miami atlanta you know boston because the client didn't mind where we were either so yeah you know, i think that's another big advantage that we've seen yeah so it's been there are lots of changes for sure. Yeah. For sure. As we, we we wrap up here, Chris, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody. Um, we're talking to thousands of small firm architects, lots of them business owners. Uh, what would you say, having all eighteen years of experience of building it from scratch, uh, what would you say is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think you kind of said it right. It's like find out what and you what if you're doing it because you enjoy it then i think it's fine and be whatever size you need to be i mean like don't don't get big i mean i still love what i do i mean i i don't stop drawing like just like that kid who is growing up all those years ago i i just draw more and more and the ipad actually gives gives me more freedom to do it right so um i think do your passion whatever that leads you to be but if you want to like i don't i i think some People who have small practices really like them to be that. Oh, and yeah. I think that's good. Uh, my method, my role isn't right for everybody either. So, but I do think the business side of it is the key because 
that's the bit that allows you to relax and enjoy the stuff you're doing. If you can get that bit of the engine, like I can't tell you how many clients or, friend, or friends or architects or whatever have gotten uh, screwed over by clients because they just didn't invoice. And, you know, right. by the time they get right. around to invoicing, the client goes, I don't remember you did this and that. And they, and, you know, just send the invoice. That was one of the first things we did is send the invoice out every month religiously, collect the money. We barely ever, I think we barely ever not had any uh, money not paid to us. And yet I've had a, a lighting designer lost 600,000 on some projects in the Middle East because his architect he was going through as a consultant went under and yeah. left him holding this. But I'm like, but why won't you invoice? He said, why well, just never got to sending the invoice. Like, yeah. I'm yeah. like, yeah. So I think the business side is, is it, I think that's the key. Um, you know, there's, we got, we got the manpower software. I, you could get something like right at the beginning, just tracking our times. We're all awful at it. You know, every, every architect hates doing time cards, but again, uh, all that kind of boring stuff, if you can get it running in the background um, and finding somebody you trust with your books, I mean, like all those kind of basic stuff, allowing you to kind of have the freedom to do what you want to do, but you really have to put work in to make it work. Focus on the fundamentals and then yeah. more time to do the fun. That's right. Yeah. It's like, like everything, just take that time to get it right. And then you can get it. it, it it's worth it in the long run. Yeah. His name is Chris Fogarty. You can find him and his firm at FogartyFinger.com. The firm's name is Fogarty Finger. We will have uh, information on the show notes, have all those links on the show notes. You should go check out the website. Beautiful work, beautiful portfolio. Uh, check out Instagram at Fogarty Finger. Um, Chris, this has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning about you and your firm. Thanks for coming on and joining us and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect Podcast will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. Thanks to our sponsors, FreshBooks and RCAT, for their support of this episode. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our business system program developed for you, the small firm architect. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends at entrearchitect.com slash join. Enroll today at entrearchitect.com slash join. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.